Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. I'd like to invent the word ecopath to describe most of what mostly white, mostly male people have inside, which is this kind of weird, cold indifference to other life forms dying. And I think that's the thing to actually work on and realize, like, yes, absolutely, we're connected to things and we wouldn't exist without these things, right? Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired-up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Welcome back to Wild. In this episode, I could actually spend the session rattling through my guest's bio and take up over an hour, but I'll limit it to the highlights. Hello, I'm Tim. I write sentences about ecological awareness. So, Timothy Morton is a British philosopher and environmentalist who lives in Texas and is referred to as the Montagna of the Anthropocene. He's also regarded as the most powerful figure in the contemporary art world and has collaborated with Bjork on a number of different wild projects after she first wrote to him in an old-school letter to ask him if he could help her define the nature of her art. He's also collaborated with Laurie Anderson, Jeff Bridges, Pharrell Williams and many, many others. Morton, who uses the pronoun they, performed at Glastonbury and has also consulted to NASA, as well as on Steve Coogan's series The Trip to Italy. He's also one of the most respected authorities on the poetry and prose of Mary Shelley and... Object Orientated Ontology, or OOO, as it's called in such circles. He's written approximately 250 essays on ecology, the ideological aspects of gastronomy, talking heads, Heidegger, concrete, and Buddhism. When he talks, he drops in facts like it will take another 765 generations, or 25,000 years, for the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere right now to be absorbed into the oceans. The long list of his books have some really intriguing titles and he makes up all kinds of words, but his latest book's called Hyposubjects and he describes it as, this text is an exercise in chaotic and flimsy thinking that will probably waste your time. I'm not sure if I agree with everything he has ever said, but he never seems to mind this. In fact, in every interview that I've heard him on, he is generous to a fault. I wonder if he's silently groaning inside his head, having a separate conversation with himself to control his impatience with the intellect of the rest of us as we try to grapple with his his complex ideas. I've previously read Tim's work as a sort of a pleasurable brain sport, and I draw on some of his ideas in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life, like the notion of hyperobjects to describe the kind of ginormous phenomenon we now find ourselves grappling with that are so big We can't stand sort of outside of them to view them as an object because we're inside of them, such as COVID and the climate crisis and things, he says, like styrofoam, not just a styrofoam cup or two, but all the styrofoam on earth ever, if you can imagine that. So really, 
all his ideas are wild. So today, instead of focusing on one wild idea, I figure I might just throw a bunch of like questions I have for the guy at him in a rapid fire way and see how we go. In the main, his mind-boggling CV aside, Morton really mostly provides in his wildness a compassionate understanding of our inability to solve the climate crisis and the implication of the fact that we face the end of the world. And I also think that what he tries to do is explain the seemingly and frustratingly hypocritical multitudes that we as humans contain. Timothy Morton, welcome to Wild. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour and a pleasure. Hey, um, we might kick off and I'll ask, what did you actually write back to Bjork? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, um, the lovely thing about working with Bjork is that we both allowed each other to go completely crazy in our own sort of crazy way. Um, And so we just talked and talked and talked about her her work and my work and stuff and we were going to be making something after we talked and then we realised that all the talk we did was the thing that we'd made and originally Björk wanted to turn it into a into a flag actually like looking like a kind of Gmail correspondence but sewn into a flag you know mm-hmm. um, I, I and I, I was know. like no actually what we need to do really is make a blanket because what you really want to do is like wrap yourself in this thing and you can't really see everything all at once. And it's kind of like in tune with how I like to think about things. And she was like, oh, that's lovely. But of course, time caught up with us and we had to make a book. <laughs> um, so did you answer her question? Did you define her art? Um, I was I was pretty hostile to defining her art, actually. I mean, if you're going to be technical about it, she's part of, you know, she her lineage is the women's surrealist artists you know but really she she's a sort of post-human ecological artist and I don't think isms apply in this ecological age so no I didn't. In my intro I gave a pretty clumsy definition of hyperobjects, which is the title of one of your most well-known books and I might just refine it a little bit it's like we as humans we've created these massive hard to fathom impossible to fathom clusterfucks um, that you describe as being almost non-human beings. They're that big and complex. And they've got like a mind of their own, a life of their own, hence this idea of them being beings. Um, So it's like the climate crisis or COVID. But the thing is, is we, we can't fix them. They're that big. And we're trapped inside of them. So we're condemned to have to be aware of the fact that we've fucked up the planet and that we've spelled potentially our own demise. Um, Have I kind of Got that right? I mean, and then, of course, our brains implode. The one thing I'd like to offer to people is to try to encourage people's brain not to implode. Um, my favourite hobby is trying to make sure people don't feel like dying. I talk a lot to Generation Z, as they say over here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their main feeling is, why do I even bother to get out of bed in the morning? So hyperobjects are like titans. They're not like gods. They're not all powerful beings. They're actually, they're really, really big and really, really scary, but you can do something about them, actually. You can uh, change them. And not all of them are made by human beings, you know. I mean, for example, the biosphere is a hyperobject, and the universe is a hyperobject, and the solar system is a hyperobject. It's kind of a relative term, you know. Yeah. So let's bring it back to the climate crisis and ecology, which is your area of interest and expertise and care most predominantly. Um, if we can use that as an example and talking to this idea of hope and not giving up, it's not doomism in your mind. It's more of a an optimistic approach. Can you explain how this awareness or what you call a strange awareness of a strange strangeness in some ways, can bring us hope and and peace in all of this. Right on. There's a lovely phrase by the old communist Antonio Gramsci from after the Second World War. And basically, he says, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, right? Like, first of all, let's figure out where exactly we are and just how, as you say, fucked up everything is. And then let's realise that, you know, dolphins don't have fingers with which to hit the keys with which to turn off all the oil pipes. It's on us simply because we can understand what's going on. Like, 
Maybe jellyfish caused it. I don't actually, I do know who caused it. They live about two miles down that way and they're called Exxon and Chevron and they should be arrested and prosecuted for something like war crimes. And basically they're guilty, but all of us are responsible. But the beautiful thing about responsibility is it's modal. In other words, there can be amounts of it. So, you know, Pacific Islander, 0.0000001% responsible American white person, 99.9999999. Yeah. And that's something that you distinguish is responsibility and guilt. You argue we shouldn't be feeling guilt about these hyper objects that we've essentially created with our reasoning brain. No. Um, and to your previous question, you know, the the sort of realising that you're in them is a little bit like being in a kind of, my favourite kind of movie, you know, where the detective realises that they're part of the criminal uh, group that they're sort of investigating, like Deckard in Blade Runner. You know, it's it's sort of called romantic irony and it means that you're kind of in a sort of loop. And for, the, for a long time, you know, some human beings have been trying to not live in this sort of loop world, but the trouble is the biosphere is just like loop world central. So sort of trying to like not do that is actually what caused the problem. And if you were going to sum up the last 12,000 years in one sentence, it would just be like, in order to avoid mild global warming, human beings created much, much worse global warming. And that's like the sort of slightly sick joke kind of spirally way of describing it, right? Yeah, And so, you know, the first thing is like, just figure out where you are, you know, otherwise, like the first thing to figure out is like you're in prison, you know, otherwise you don't know how to escape, right? One of the things that I think you, in another book, talk about and you talk about throughout your work is this idea that there's no such thing as nature. And then, of course, this interconnectedness that then extends from that. Because, of course, for the last however many hundreds, thousands of years, we have separated ourselves from nature. And, in fact, the strange awareness is this idea that we are way more interconnected. We got it wrong. Reason our brains, our rational thought, got it wrong. And so, yeah, explain, explain that to us. So one of, the, one of the damaged things is this idea of nature that we have, right? I like to say biosphere and I like to say symbiosis, but I don't like to say nature, you see, because the thing is nature is a human being artificial construct. I truly believe that coral and dolphins exist. That means that I don't think they're natural. I think there's something else, right? See, the trouble with the concept of nature is it's normative. In other words, it creates a contrast between natural and unnatural. And just think about all of the patriarchal and racist violence that's done in the name of natural versus unnatural, right? And so, you know, this is not a good word. And But when I first told people this in a book called Ecology Without Nature. The title is what it says, so you don't have to read it. But basically, I got death threats for that um, from some American environmentalists because they were so addicted to this nature concept. And I got stalked and I had to, like, call the police and stuff because it was, like, scary because, like, woe betide the person who takes away somebody's fantasy. Taking away a reality is pretty bad, but removing a fantasy is really sort of like evil. And I think I get paid to do and say evil stuff. Well, I mean, really what you're saying is that we are not separate. We're part of nature. And that's what the spiritualists have been trying to say for many, many years. And of course, you know, physics and biology shows that to be true as well. You're just pointing out what is in fact true. It's beautiful that you said spiritual, Mm. you know, um, because, because there's a whole big like dimension of this that, that that really is that, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of takes me to the area that I'm particularly interested in because it, there's a, almost a humility that you're encouraging. Hey, guys, we're not this all-dominating kind of top-of-the-food chain um, being. Like, get over yourselves. You've created this mess because you've thought you were separate from nature. Um, you didn't live and embrace and love the interconnectedness um, that is right in front of you. And it's kind of it's kind of funny. I, I'll bring out two thoughts. First of all, have you watched George Carlin's, um, is it Save the Planet um, skit from I think the 1980s? If I have, I can't remember it. I sometimes have a pretty bad memory. I'm going to send you the link because it is brilliant. First of all, he he brings up the fact that you know, environmentalists have been focusing on saving the planet, this idea of this other, that humans, we're over here, the planet and nature's over there. And he's like, the planet will be fine. It's humans that are fucked. 
And so that's the big awakening um, to the sixth extinction that I think a lot of people are finding rather rude right now. It's so painful. The thing is, though, that um, I would modify that, actually. We're so chemically entangled with the rest of the biosphere that if we go, it means either the whole of the rest of it's about to go or it went already. Um, the last mass extinction based on global warming wiped out all but 4% of life forms on the planet. Mm -hmm. This one is on us. So I'm not a fan of going extinct anytime soon. I'd rather not. Um, but yes, the, the the cards are stacked against us. And that actually brings me to the second thing that um, George Carlin's skit brings up. And you, please go and just Google it after this. But I will send you the link and I'll put the link in the show notes as well. The other thing he says is that, you know, humans spend their lives going, why are we here and what are we for? You know, again, a very unhumble sort of approach to things. And he breaks it down through this sequence and, and works out that the answer is plastic. Essentially, the world couldn't create plastic. We came, we extracted the oil, we made this plastic, we then ingested it. And this was before there was the science showing that we ingest a credit card piece of plastic each week or something. Um, he said, we've become plastic, we created plastic. The planet couldn't do it on its own, so it created humans. The answer is plastic. The meaning of life is plastic. Um, and that sort of speaks to almost this hyper-object concept. We have become the thing that we created. And the impression I get is the salve, philosophically, because I think you are trying to find a peaceful, hopeful, radically hopeful path through this, and that is to accept our interconnectedness. But can you explain to people, like, how, how and can this save us? Well, first of all, you and George Carlin should write all of my stuff from now because that was said much more eloquently than I would say. But imagine being an anaerobic bacterium about 3.5 billion years ago, right? So you're basically producing this pollution from your point of view called oxygen. The first ever hyperobject, actually, if you think about it, on the planet produced by a life form is called oxygen. It's still happening. We're still breathing, though, you know, it's a, it's a catastrophe that we're inside of, right, that we actually benefited from because some of those anaerobic bacteria sort of hid accidentally in other single-celled organisms and then eventually evolved into plants and animals. And to your previous point, there's no Ford's gear in evolution. It's all random. You know, we're not the top of anything or the end of anything or different from anything. And, you know, so imagine being a bacterium at that moment, right? That's You're inside this thing that's killing you. And, you know, by chance, some of you survive because you just accidentally got swallowed by another single-celled organism. It's kind of that situation, you know? Do you find comfort personally in all of this? I'm going to drill down into this. Like, how? How do you find comfort? And I'll, I'll just start by saying the way I look at it, I've been a climate activist for many years and if, for want of a better word, um, and I've also suffered from incredible anxiety. I know that you have depression um, and I've actually found my anxiety has dialed down massively in the face of what is going on right now, the pandemic and the climate. You're giving me the thumbs up. You get it. Yeah, know, knowing something about being already dead, you know, it's sort of like, when was it not true that you weren't that when, when was it not true that you were dying right when was it not true that life forms and in particular human beings were going extinct this was always true right like we know we we know this and why wouldn't you want to hold or be held by your loved person whether that person be a cat or a human being while one of you is dying when was that not true right yeah. and so in some way allowing this fact to just percolate through you is indeed strangely relaxing and liberating. It's, it, it's the sort of worry that, that we, we, we're going to fall off a cliff or that there's going to be this horrible desert of nothing, um, you know, or that there's going to be some kind of apocalypse. You know, that's what people are, that's why people are getting scared, you know. It's the unknown um, that I think we find the most terrifying. Um, with all of these thoughts that you have, do you feel lonely? I mean, the impression I get is that you do share this kind, these sentences about ecology um, because you're wanting to provide comfort. Is that true? I don't know if I want to provide comfort. I don't quite know what I'm doing. But, you know, my son, Simon, he came back from his middle school yesterday. He's 12 years old. And quite amazingly, surprisingly, he's one of the people, one of the little kids in this school, like 12 years old, was like, 
oh my God, is your dad Timothy Morton? And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm, I, I, I didn't realize. So I talked to a lot of high school students, you know, and I talked to Extinction Rebellion youth and stuff, but I didn't know that I could talk to mid- middle school people, you know, and there's like a whole branch of therapy now um, created by a group called the Climate Therapy Alliance and based on a book that I wrote called Dark Ecology. Yeah. And they are talking to Greta Thunberg and, and Extinction Rebellion Youth, and those guys need all the help they can get. You know, for, for me, it's not about feeling comfortable. It's about, like, how to not be in the fetal position in a state of absolutely frozen. So is it a humility that provides, let's use the word comfort, or peace or understanding and acceptance? Is it... The humility of our interconnectedness. I think it's it's for, for 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 me it's more like a kind of passionate burning flame, of 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 like all the feelings and thoughts that you have. Where's the plug holes? You know, like I have a very lots of lots of things going on inside me, and I need to I need outlets to plug them into right and. Yeah giving a shit about like all the other life forms on this planet and kind of changing the way people do art and like helping teenagers not to feel like killing themselves is like these are like my favorite hobbies you know this is for me the point like rather than trying to find a a place where I can just kind of feel comfy it's more to do with completely engage you know and when you just completely engage you just sort of let go of yourself right like you know you, you see somebody running in the street they're about to get hit by a car you don't stand around proving to yourself whether or not you're responsible for it or whether or not you're guilty for that thing. You just go and save them. And it may feel very weird and strange. And when you're being interviewed on the telly later on, you're going to say something like, I don't really know why I did it. I just ran in the street and did it. There's not enough reasons to love anything or anybody on this earth, right? Like one of the greatest things that I like is my when my meditation teacher says, you know, just... Um, Love, love for no reason. You know, be happy for no reason. There's not a really good reason for doing this, guys. It's to do with love and passion and devotion and all that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. It's um, this idea that, I mean, it's really going in the opposite direction. Rationality probably got us into this idea that the hyper, you know, of these hyper objects, but it's going back in the other direction. And I think you've talked about radical care, like actually caring about even ugly things like nuclear waste. Emotions are from the future. You know, emotions are ideas that you don't know what they are yet, right? Like, why else do you do therapy? You're having a feeling you don't know quite what it is yet. Obviously, it's also a symptom of something in the past, right? The trouble with the idea of, of cold reason is that's also an emotion, right? That Pretending not to be, it's called being a psychopath. You know, there's only one kind of entity on this earth that has no anxiety whatsoever. It's called a psychopath. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with anxiety. It's a lovely... Th- sort of soup, in which you can find, like most people give up meditating when they hit the anxiety, you know, they're like, I must be doing it wrong or this meditation is bad. I should get involved in a toxic relationship or take these drugs instead. But actually, of course, when you hit that anxiety, what you need to do is just sort of be with it. And inside the anxiety, you might find something else when it slightly starts to slow down, you know. But first of all, you need to just realize that's the basic flavor of being the kind of sentient being that I am, I can't speak for hedgehogs and I don't know, maybe bottles of Pellegrino also have anxiety, but I have no idea I'm not a bottle of Pellegrino. All I know is that all my emotions are made out of it, right? And if Mm -hmm. I try to delete it, it's basically functionally called being a psychopath and I'd like to sort of create a new word here. Okay, you have permission. I'd like to invent the word ecopath, please. I'd like to invent a word to describe most of what mostly white, mostly male people have inside, which is this kind of weird, cold indifference to other life forms dying, you know? And I think that's the thing to actually kind of lubricate and massage and work on and realise, like, yes, absolutely, we're connected to things and we wouldn't exist without these things, right? Yeah. um, I I hate to... Uh, reference Trump here, but, um, you know, he said, was it, it's a scary time to be a, a white man. Do you agree with him on that? Yeah, and it should be a scary time to be a white man. Um, it should be a great time to get off your white man high horse and start identifying with Black Lives Matter and Me Too. Because from my point of view, ending white supremacy and patriarchy are absolutely foundational 
to any truly progressive ecological politics, actually. They're not optional extras. And I don't know which one comes first, right? But I'm saying logically prior to... This is how we get to actually like have solidarity with whales and coral and stuff is by ending patriarchy and white supremacy. That's a sort of part of it. You know, why we are so violent to other life forms is because we're violent to each other. Yeah. I mean, the toxicness of that white masculinity, which affects men just as much as it affects women and marginalised cultures, etc., um, is it, it's, it holds humanity back from caring. And as you, as you, you know, this radical care of, of, of just caring about everything, like where do you draw the line? I think once you start having debates as to where to draw the line on your care and your give a shit factor... I mean, you're wasting time. Just care. Just care, care, care. You're so right. You're so absolutely right. Like, 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 you know, wouldn't it be better to make the concept of person super, super, super cheap and available so that obviously primates, but also like, if you're me, pencils can have it too, right? Dawn handles can have it. You know, you don't have to go quite as far as crazy Tim on this score. But, you know, I just figured out I was non-binary gender like last year. And so, you know, a whole bunch of my life has been trying to pretend that I'm something that I'm not, right? And masculinity is a very, as you say, it hurts It hurts people with Y chromosomes too, you know, that I think personally, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here, masculinity as such is toxic. It's not like there's masculinity and toxic masculinity. How can you perform something that's pretending not to be performing anything? I mean, what kind of a strange head trip is that going to give you, you know? Mm. I mean, this is just like, describing every encounter that happens in Texas where people are so hard at work, proving that they're guys, that there's a lot of homophobia going on, because you can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you used the example I mentioned a minute ago about sort of caring about nuclear waste. And what I liked about that argument is that at a minimum, um, it can kind of cure, cure us of the idea that we're in control of something because it actually stops us stops that separation, you know, that us versus them, this other. Um, but then at a maximum you say that it actually can actually save the world because I guess it stops us from drawing that line. And you talk about, you know, putting it above ground in public so that we can see it, put a, an attractive fence around it so that we become conscious and online, I suppose. I'm reading into your thinking here. Is that sort of the radical kind of care for the planet the life, the everything, the hyper-objects you're talking about. That's beautiful. Like, as, as, as soon as you realise that you can't get rid of the thing that you think is toxic and bad, right? Like, on a certain time scale, there's no such thing as a way. On a certain space scale, there's no such thing. You can hide that stuff in Yucca Mountain, you know, in the Western USA, but 20,000 years from now, that mountain's probably not going to exist, right? So just deal with the fact that there are these things that we've created. And, you know, every country that that, that, that has deployed anything to do with nu- nuclear anything, in every town square of that country, a small speck of whatever that is, in some kind of glass that protects beings around it from being irradiated. So that, you know, we, ad- we admit that in a funny way, you know, it's, it's sort of like where the, like, like step one of being a spiritual person is actually realizing that evil is not a thing that you can fly a drone over or fly a plane into and get rid of. You are the evil that you see in the world to sort of perversely adapt a bit of Barack Obama there. And, you know, for me, there's some relief in that, actually. Like, like, like I can't get rid of this dangerous, toxic thing. And it's just, it's just me. It's just part of me, you know. And I'm just going to live with that. So I guess the gift of the hyper-object idea is that it actually presents us with the mirror image of what we've done so that we can face it, deal with all the emotions, because as you know, in climate psychology terms, we need to move through these emotions of grief, regret, fear, sadness, um, et cetera, so that we can then get on with making something better out of this, whether it's adaptation, whether it's creativity. I think I've also heard you refer to the idea of intimacy, getting on with intimacy, the shit that really matters. Have I got that right? Is that, the, is that a better definition of how hyperobjects work? For real. Like, so, so you know, um, guys have really only got maybe five seconds to be 
weirded out by the fact that they came out of the biosphere, in particular a vagina, probably, right? They've got five seconds to figure, oh my God, I'm connected to everything. Like, tripping about that for longer might be a bit of a waste of time, and we've been paying loads of attention to this patriarchal performance for some time, right? So instead, like, as you say, let's work with these things. I don't know if we can actually get rid of grief, though. I think grief is sort of like... It's a practice. A wonderful... You know what grief is? For me, it's my past trying to give my future a massage, right? (laughs) It's this inner body worker, you know, and it's saying, hey, look, just lie on the bed in the fetal position. Your abs are going to feel terrible. You're going to feel like you want to throw up and I'll leave when I want to leave. But basically afterwards, you'll be somewhere different and I'll see you again soon, right? And I I call my grief Barbara Hepworth because it's like this big, abstract, huge, spiky, metallic kind of sculpture thing inside of me. And it's the size of my life, so I can't get around it or over it. I just have to be with it, right? And like somehow let it lubricate my future. Mm. I, yeah, I love the idea that it's a massage. So it's it's a practice that we return to in some ways. It's a signal you know, a, a helpful signal and all of this is a helpful signal. I think we can use hyperobjects or any of these kinds of, grief is a hyperobject in many ways, to sink into overwhelm and acedia or once we face it and we have more of a loving, caring discussion around it, which is like the kind of conversation we're having here, we then can settle into the reality, the, the isness of it, to use sort of Buddhist-type thinking or spiritual thinking and now what? And now what are we going to create? So like, um, you know, the, we, we, we all know what hyperobjects are for real because we've all got the hyperobject feeling and the feeling is always more important than the idea. Ideas are just receipts. Ideas are from the past and feelings are from the future. And we've got the hyperobject feeling now. It's called coronavirus. It's everywhere and it's yeah. nowhere and it's on every single surface and you can't see it. And on this scale, one-on-one, it's totally terrifying. And on this massive planet scale, Awa has heard you and we have planet scale awareness all of a sudden, you know, with Black Lives Matter showing up just in time to also be a planet scale political project. And, you know, we care about each other, right? Like wearing a mask doesn't mean you're distanced from somebody. It means you're intimate with somebody. Tape measure, you might be far away, But emotion, you're very close because what you're saying there when you're talking on Zoom or you're not going to the supermarket or you're socially distancing is, I have mercy on you. I don't want you to die, right? And I I, I teach a lot of classes on Zoom because of this. And it's actually like there's more intimacy than trying to force yourself to be face-to-face, right? And right now... We can choose to see the mask as a signifier of our care. And God knows we need as many of those... As, as as possible at the moment. Uh, yeah, there's so many paradoxes, isn't there, with uh, COVID. I found it fascinating. Um, I refer to it as the great revealer because we've had to go to our rooms and have a good hard look at ourselves. Essentially, that's what's happened with lockdown. And so it's created this awesome opportunity. And it's no coincidence that the Black Lives Matter, uh, a lot of the Me Too stuff in this country erupted in this time. I mean, it's perfect. It all had to come to the surface. It's like the gunk. We took the Band-Aid off and it revealed the original wound. Right on, right on. Yeah, and so I think I've heard you say that you actually think that opening up, the opening up process, which the world is sort of pulsing in and out of with a lot of hesitancy at the moment, is a form of lockdown. Yeah, for real. It's the reverse of what people think. Lockdown is is opening and reopening is locking down into the same old, same old... You know, like how many years longer are we going to let this kind of Mickey Mouse brooms of whatever the Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of economy thing we've got going keep on sweeping? Because they're going to keep going until planet death. There's no stopping, right? And one of the things that happened at the beginning of lockdown was a very slight tweak to that kind of churning, churning, churning. You know, there's another word for plastic. It's called the death drive. And this is this churning, churning, churning thing. And You know, I would say the word overkill is a really good substitute for this weird Freudian concept of death drive. And what it is, it's like, we can't just have soft cell walls. We've got to have latex, which is made out of soft cell walls, but it's turned into oil. And then you turn it into latex, which provides this kind of body armor thing. And we're going to make some plastic to really shield ourselves from, you know, and like trying to protect ourselves too much is what's kind of killing us, Mm. right? And so just being a little more open, you know, to the fact that, um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a survivory person and survivor is definitely to do with 
who cares if other people get in the way, I just need to, to live. That's really different from actually living and being alive. And I only just figured this out, right? Like, like being alive doesn't mean not being dead at any cost. It actually is more like a kind of quivery state mm. in between not existing at all and doing the same thing over and over and over mechanically. And we're in this kind of world where doing the same thing over and over and over is our thing, mm. right? And so anyone like me or you who says we should crank the lever over a little bit more towards accepting the not existing thing sounds like, you know, you know, you want to exterminate people, which couldn't be further from the truth. It's more like you want to live, you want to stop surviving and you want to live because it's survival mode got us into this, people. What do you say to people who are saying they want to return to normal, that they're lamenting normal and, oh, it'll be great when we get back to normal? What do you say to them? Normal was always completely not normal. Normal was destroying the planet. Normal is just habitual, right? That's not normal. Normal is like the habit, like, you know, like maybe I should just have a note, maybe I shouldn't be you know careful with these drugs and alcohol anyway I just think I deserve a drink now I'll just go back into that world that's not normal that's just like habitual pattern stuff right and we've just gotten used to you know and our world has become so efficient at reproducing so-called normal and at a certain scale efficiency is pretty much the same as evil we are in capitalism. Uh, we face a crisis that we need to we we need to care like motherfuckers to to, to get the job done. So we're not going to be able to change things in in a hurry. Um, can we work within capitalism to do what we need to do? And also, you've talked about being radically materialist. Is that is that the sort of the nuance through road? Wow, the, 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 these are such beautiful questions. And the thing is, it's like, this is so confusing and difficult because we got to do about five different things and we don't know what order to do them in. But stopping the biosphere from imploding would be great whether or not we want capitalism to continue or not because there won't be a biosphere in which any economics can continue unless economics is sitting on top of an ecology that makes sense then it doesn't matter how you fold the laundry and put it in the drawers because your house is on fire. So personally, ending, you know, or mitigating or whatever the hell it is, um, the global warming thing is priority number one. But the thing that how we get there is by seriously working on capitalism and seriously working on white supremacy and patriarchy. And I think the future world... We're going to know we're getting it right when we begin to feel like, wow, this is all these failed experiments and we're trying and failing and starting and stopping and we can't get it right and it's not efficient at all and it doesn't add up. And you know what that's called? That's called being an artist. Yes. I think the future world is going to feel to us like more uncertain and kind of like think about doing a painting. You go, oh, this is wrong. I'm going to do it again. Creativity involves this, right? We're going to be living in a more creative world with more pleasure. I think the problem with our world right now is not that there's too much pleasure. I don't think there's nearly enough pleasure. I want dolphin pleasure. 
I want coral pleasure, polar bear pleasure, human being pleasure of all genders, races, and classes, and blah, 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 blah. And like, this would be the kind of radical materialism that I'm talking about. Yeah, so so consuming, but in a completely different way. It's not a um, destroy um, mentality. It's consuming. It passes in, it passes out. It's a dance. For real. Like instead of this idea that I'm above everything and I can do anything to anything and I can choose any kind of shampoo in the supermarket because I'm free, which basically defaults to sadism in the end, you know, like which life form am I going to eat tonight? Um, is 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 like that's just one way of, of, of doing it. Another way we all know is that, you know, you have to kind of tune to things to enjoy them really. Even a bottle of Coca-Cola is asking you to hold it in a certain way, right? And we're always responding to actually directives coming from, they, they, they tell us, you know, mushrooms and trees and bottles of Coca-Cola and tennis rackets and, you know, weed and, and, and alcohol. Tell us how to consume them and enjoy them and not like mess them up, actually. You know, like if you try to drive really consciously, you're probably going to die. You know, mostly like a lot of what we do is actually sort of from a certain patriarchal point of view, seemingly passive, right? But I think really acting is much more like listening. And if you've ever been in a band, you'll know exactly what I mean by that. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's joining the flow and flow and dance and, and creativity. They're the words that excite me. And it makes me think of a tile, a meme that went around, and I think I've got her name right. She's an intersectional climate activist out of the States called Mary Higler. I might have that wrong, but I'll put it in the show notes. And she said something like, I don't, you know, rather than getting all doomsy about, you know, the mess, <laughs> um, I get excited about the life that it's going to produce, like, and it's the creativity and all the ideas that are going to come forth if we stop holding back and it's, you know, this brings it all together. If we stay fixated on the old normal, if we stay in the old system, if we don't choose actively to get out of our acedia and then do the dance with our consumption, then we will we will stay in that doomism. What we want to do is actually, actually truly be alive. This is what the calling is. This is what COVID, this is what the climate crisis is is about and to go back to my point that we sort of had a slight disagreement intellectual disagreement or even spiritual disagreement on the fact that I trust the flow of life I adore the flow of life and of course every spiritual practice and 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 now ecological practices are about listening and sitting and observing and then joining in a very very different way I love that and I think the reason why I find my hope in this re- horrible, horribly confronting reality is because I understand where it all fits and now I can choose to do it differently and that's what excites me. And my excitement gets me up every day and I think um, people like Greta Thunberg, yourself, like it's like our nervous system was built for this. We've been nervous going, hey, guys, something's not right, something's not right, something's not right, and then all of a sudden it now makes sense and, okay, and now we can dance. For real. And like, I'm glad you said slight and I'm glad you said intellectual because actually we're, we're very much on the same page here. And I'm from 1988, right? Like a whole lot of the things I feel and think about ecology are actually from from acid house and techno and raving and all that stuff, you know, as well as listening to whale songs in the mid 70s and going to the ecology exhibition in the Natural History Museum and all that jazz, you know. And so, yeah, and for me, dancing is the default art, right? Like mm. may, maybe being alive is the default form of dancing. You know, like you get up, you get out of bed, you walk down the street. It's kind of a boring dance, but it's dancing, right? And then maybe the default of being alive is called being asleep, right? Where you're just lying there and your body fluids are just kind of pulsing away and your, Flicking through your Twitter. brain, as you said, is just pulsing away and you're, you're, you're dreaming, I'm a huge fan of movement. Like some people want to like explain it away, but I'm like, this is the deepest thing about our world is that everything's moving and sort of like vibrating, you know, and we can get into funny technical stuff about it, but really it's just called being alive. It is. And there's a lot of new therapies, 
somatic therapy, different philosophical thoughts that bring it all back to sort of spiritual thinking that talks to this idea of, of the vibration, the vote, yeah. How do you cope personally? I mean, you explore these wild ideas. You go out to the edge consistently with your interest in art, philosophy, the everythingness. Um, and we do live in a world which is very scared, can't cope with nuances. We're black and white, us is us and them. It's very binary. Um, it's a world that it has lost all ability to be uncomfortable. And what you are, you represent uncomfortable ideas, um, even though I find them very comforting. I mean, people freak out about masks. This is, this, you know, they protest. They get worked up about that. How do you cope? Um, how do you soften into it? How do you meet humanity at this level? Because I can tell you love humanity. You absolutely yeah. yes. adore a humanity. So how, how do you cope? Yeah, well, you know, one answer to the question would be really, really badly. I'm mostly bluffing when I'm doing interviews and lectures and writing books and stuff, because if I let it in, I'm going to be in the fetal position, having the grief process, which I only just learned how to do, to be absolutely honest with you. But I'm a meditation fan as well as a therapy fan, and I'm, it's, I'm not talking about mindfulness here. I'm just talking about letting yourself just kind of drop into your body and the fearlessness of what, just accept whatever's happening in your, I don't like to say mind because there's this weird kind of dualism thing. I almost prefer to say soul, to be honest with you. Just like everything that you ever touched and saw and felt and everything that ever did that to you, right? That's your soul. It's not this liquid in a bottle. It's this kind of weird cloud that doesn't necessarily have a very strong boundary. And just letting that cloud rain on in you, on you, however it's going to do it, right? Okay, here comes some anger, accept, right? Like anger's fine. Aggression is a problem, but you're not being aggressive in that moment because you're just kind of non-violently letting this feeling just sort of happen. You know, it happened, so it's going to unhappen, right? And you just sort of train many, many times. Like you get the hang of it for maybe five seconds and you're, whoa, I stepped off the escalator I got to get back on right and then you sort of do it a little bit and a little bit and a little you get a bit, a bit more fearless and a bit more like carefree but dignity mm. right like fe fearless but sim sim simple fearless right like not like I'm gonna block stuff but actually I'm gonna unblock stuff and I'm gonna be like welcome everything I think that's a very beautiful um, description of meditation because, of course, the mind constantly wants to be able to define meditation so that we can talk about it with each other. But um, this idea of it being fearless, fearless with dignity, um, it, that is just a, a wonderful way to talk about it. But then, of course, that connection and sitting in the isness of it all that practice of coming back to it over and over again, you then take into your everyday life. If I got that right, that's how you cope. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You can do this on the bus, right? You can do this on the toilet. You can do this while you're fighting with your partner. You, you, you kind of should, you know, like my meditation teachers, like this isn't just for the cushion, you know, this is for when you're driving in the car at a, hundred miles an hour. I don't want to encourage people to break the law here. But, so, but, 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 but like this should be something that can occur to you when you're in the checkout line in the supermarket, right? Just sort of let go and let, let other people's stuff happen. You don't have to adjust your set. You don't have to keep adjusting things all the time. You just sort of let it be, you know, that good old John Lennon thing. Mm. I, I do it as well when I'm in the conversations, for instance, with, you know, anti faxes or people who are angry in various ways and want to stay in binary thinking. And it's sort of you describe it as, you know, you've been bluffing. It, it's almost like putting on an apron like a chef. You put the apron on, you perform, you take the apron off and you go home and eat baked beans on toast at home, right? Wow. And that's, that's what I also do. But then, of course, the practice, you bring it in and so then the everythingness, the nebulousness starts to morph and hopefully the creative, freer, embracing, interconnected vibe can spread out further into whatever crowd you're talking to, et cetera. Well, you are super courageous compared to me because right now I'm stuck on this thing of just knock yourselves out, guys, and die. 
because it really, like, I don't freedom in the key of murder-suicide, you know, freedom in the key of I don't care if I die. Like, just recently, just yesterday, some poor Texan anti-vax person died, you know, and he left behind three children and a fourth one in his wife's uterus. And it's just like, these guys didn't ask for this, you know? And it's like, I, I, I don't know where you get the patience from. I would like to be a more patient person. But right now, I'm on this, I'm at this place of just freaking knock yourselves out, guys. Have fun, you know. In the name of not wearing masks, you're going to condemn us to wear these things forever, by the way. This anti-vax stance means you have to get vaccinated for the rest of your life. Mm. I think it personifies, I understand, it personifies the individualism, the, the dominance of the individual over the collective. And we've always needed a nice, neat balance, a, a really kind of safe balance to actually ensure our survival, to ensure this idea, this hyper-object idea of us being at the top of the food chain. And we've swung the pendulum too far. So I suppose I get my compassion from the understanding of where it all comes from. And I guess an absolute faith in humanity somewhere because if not that, then what? I suppose the one last thing I want to ask is um, in my book I ask myself, if we lose it all, then what is left? And tell you what my answer is. My answer was, and I was I was quoting some philosopher, um, the name escapes me just now, but um, I, was quote, I was quoting someone and they said, turn your life into a study in work and love. And so for me, that's the rod to which I adhere as I contemplate everything that is here. For you, what is the answer to that idea that if we lose it all, what is left? Well, Maybe I could quote my friend Laurie Anderson, the pop singer, who's a lot more sanguine about going extinct than I am. Mm -hmm. And she basically, in one of her new works, says, you know, the the one thing I love about the stars is we we can't hurt them. Mm. And is that something that you find comfort in? Is that what's left? If I don't know what's left. You see, this is the trouble. I don't... I can't rubberneck my own demise because I'm gone, you see. So if I'm, if I'm pr- thinking about it, there I am thinking about it, projecting into the future, right? And so it's more like I, you, 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 you can never really see your own death. You can never really see extinction, right? It's a hypothetical question, I guess. It's the idea that if we have to accept the sixth extinction as a reality, I think you'd agree we have to, um, then what is left to sustain your sense of life and importance and meaning and and juiciness? Well, again, I would say pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. It might be true that many, many life forms are going extinct. That doesn't excuse me at all from caring about my... So my lizard died. I had this lovely bearded dragon and they died last year. And, you know, I held them in my arms while they were dying. And it's like, when was that ever not true, right? That, that, that you would hold your loved person in your arms while they were dying, right? When was it ever not true that you would want to be surrounded by people who loved you while you were... What, what, what's the last thing you would ever say to someone as you fall off the cliff? It's got to be, I love you, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure whether I have an answer because... The older I get and the more I write and the more like slow motion everything becomes in my life, the less I sort of want to hold on to an idea and the more I just want to let things move, you know, sort of in me and around me. And so I've started writing really differently. Like, like I, I, I would never write that book, Hyper Objects, now because we've all got the feeling for a kickoff and plus we don't need people like me to make everybody else feel stupid and evil one more second. You know, we need people like me to model, like, going through these emotions, right? And the word emotion is to do with moving. So what brings you joy and what are you wanting to work on now and contribute to this? Well, I'm writing a book with my friend Nick, Nicholas Royal, um, and it's called Everything is Happening, Visions of 2020. And it started off as a kind of COVID thing, but now it's turned into a sort of everything thing. And we don't know what it's going to be, but it's very nice to write it. And I'm writing a book called The Stuff of Life, which is about like my life 
seen through all of these supposedly inanimate objects like my teddy bear and my concealer stick and the tube station that I used to go to when I was a kid to get to school, you know. And so it's like that writing process, you know, and then, the, 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 oh, there are so many things we could talk about here, but 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 that's part of it anyway for me. It's like I I kind of give up having ideas really and just kind of like whatever I'm doing, I don't know exactly if there's a word for it anymore. Creating. It's art. Oh, mm. there you go. There. I'm a bit scared of saying that. Thank you for saying it for me. You've moved out of the rational and into that more expressive, yeah, expression, outwards, giving. That's very nice of you. It's, it's, it's funny because like, I would never describe myself as a philosopher. Other people do, and I never trained that way, you know. And I would also probably never describe myself as an artist either. It would feel to me like super arrogant to say that about myself. So I, it's nice that you could say it because I might, I might feel a bit funny about, about saying it myself. Oh, um, I think you're an incredible contribution. I mean, I think the easy way to describe you would be as the ultimate renaissance, I was going to say man, renaissance human. That's so very, very kind of you. I, I, I don't think I am at all. You know, I, th- I think I'm just a really confused person trying to figure out, you know, with whatever this is in my, my mind, you know, like st- st- stuff. Um, and, I, and, and I don't think I'm that different from other human beings in that respect. But it's very kind of you to say that. That's it's very nice for you. Thank you. Well, the difference is, is that you produce, you give out, you care, you put your care out there on the page. So thank you so much, Timothy. This has been a really enjoyable, warming human chat for me um i long for them so thank you me too me too it's the only show in town thank you so much i'm deeply Mm. honored and touched that you would want to do this perhaps that's the answer if 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 we lose it all what is left it's this Mm. i think you could be right there you said it i said in the introduction to this chat with timothy that i felt that he does what he does he comes up with his weird words and his theories and his books to make us feel okay or actually great about the multitudes of being a human being. Lindsay, the producer here, said that what struck her from the chat is that he said he aims to not revert to doomism, to not curl up in the fetal position on the floor in the face of everything that is in front of us. But then later he said he's bluffing. And I think that you could say that he contradicts himself a few times, but really what I see it as is he he is able to dance between both. He also says that he grieves, but instead of seeing that as a distressing thing, he sees it as giving his past a massage. He says that lockdown is our great opening and that opening up is a lockdown. Most strikingly, he also says that being interconnected and being aware of our interconnectedness, being aware that we're not separate from nature and that we are responsible for everything that's going on is frightening. But what it also does is enable expansiveness. So the wild idea I take from all of this is to dance in our multitudes and to go back to that question that if we were to hypothetically lose it all tomorrow, in 50 years, in 100 years, then what remains is this beautiful free dance in it all. And that, to me, is a meaningful life. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.